when you think of this word, whether it's a, a picture you get or a person that you think of or some other descriptive words, what comes to mind when you hear the word humble? Gentle, okay. What else? Forgiveness. Nice. Power? Okay, without God's power, we can't be humble. Surrender. Submission. Yeah, it's kind of go together, don't they? Compassion? Okay. And love? Sure. Being genuine. Yes. Okay, a real sincerity. It's good. So we kind of have an idea, all of us, of what that word feels like to us or what we think it should be like, what we strive for, what we want to see, um, all those things that were discussed. We're going to go a little further into this idea of humility today, um, and it does pick up on all these things that we talked about. But the first thing that I want us to notice because scripture gives us a lot of instructions, doesn't it? Or, or encouragements of how to have a godly character, how to be a Christ follower, and what that's supposed to look like, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, and other passages that we're given about how to live the Christian life. But over and over throughout scripture, we come back to this word humility or being humble. And it seems that, number one, humility is important to God. It's important to God. That's our first point, is that when we look through Scripture, we see that this particular quality is important to God, and we really want to understand why that is or what it is about it that makes it so important. And then, of course, we want to apply that. If it's that important to God, it needs to be that important to us. That very familiar verse, James 4, 6, that we've all heard over and over, that God opposes the proud, but he gives what? Grace. Grace to the humble. He opposes that strong arm, stiff-armed, I mean, stiff-armed. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Greek word for grace. Oh, did it not go? There we go. The Greek word for grace is toponos. Toponos. And that simply means, as you can see there, uh, base, to be cast down, of low degree or a state, or to be lowly. So kind of what we would expect that definition to be is what the Greek word means. But it also has this sense, and this is what I love about looking at the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek in Scripture, because it will bring out nuances that our English language doesn't have. And so when we look at this word throughout Scripture... It also has this sense of not rising far from the ground. So humility has a sense of when we say lowly, of lowness, of not rising far from the ground. Now, when we think of our culture, or even just contemporariness in the world, um, but our culture in particular, the American culture, Humility, or not rising far from the ground, is not a natural 
position for us. We Westerners who pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and conquer the world and we can do anything and the American dream and all of that doesn't really go well with not rising far from the ground. It's not our natural bent to have this position over others. But when we think of that, when we think of that position, what's one word, a biblical idea or a churchy idea that comes to mind when you think of not rising far from the ground or a lowly heart? What was that one? Kneeling. Kneeling. Good. And what are we doing sometimes when we're kneeling? Praying. And another one? And singing? And Worshipping, worshipping. In the ancient cultures, when people worshipped, they were down on the ground. They were prostrate. That was what worship to them meant. In our culture and in more contemporary cultures, worship has become standing up, raising our arms, and looking up. That's what we associate with worship. But that's not what the biblical writers thought of as worship. And humility was more of a low posture of bending down before someone. Because what that indicated was that you were saying, if you bowed before someone, you were acknowledging that your status was lower than theirs. That they were either in authority or they were royal or they had some position that was more than yours. And so you would bow before them acknowledging that situation and that you were humbled or submitted to them, which is how uh, the ancient people worshiped the Lord. We see so many times in scripture that Moses and Aaron in particular, I, I should go back and count how many times it says that they fell face down before God because that was how they responded to God's presence and God's speaking in their life was this position of lowliness. But it doesn't come naturally. None of us will just say, naturally get up and think, I just need to be on the ground before people today. You know, we don't do that. And we're all scrapping to get higher and better and bigger than other people because that's just the human nature and that's part of the American culture. Um, and so we have to think differently about our position and who we are and what it means. And that's not a negative thing. In case you're thinking, well, I really don't like where this is going. This will get better um, as we get through it and we get to the application. But it's not the natural condition of our heart. And I know that from experience, and so do you. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Um, when I was in high school, so way back, and believe me, there are a lot of current things I could share as well. But there were two things that happened that were just, just burned into my brain that God was teaching me. When I was in high school, I decided in my junior year that I would try out for the Letter Girl Squad. I don't know what, I do not know why I did that. But at the time, it seemed like a fun thing to do. So I did, I got on the Letter Girl Squad, and we had these real cute little dresses, and I was the E, we were eagles. And, uh, you know, we had these red and white gloves, so red on one side, white on the other. And we could do all these cute little things with our hands. And on game days, we would put little bows in our hair and put glitter on our face. You know, we were all about it. And at 17, I just thought I was some pretty hot stuff. And so I remember one particular game day, we had to leave early. So we were all dressed in our cute little stuff. And um, 
just coincidentally, I had to walk all the way through the school from the back end of the hallway down to the office. And so I was pretty much prancing, really. I'm just so proud of myself as I'm walking through the school. And I was kind of just picking up some speed, and I started kind of skipping down the hallway, just feeling pretty good about myself. And I get towards the steps that lead up into the office, and I have kind of had a little bit of a speed at that point, and I skipped up the steps, and my toe caught that top step. And I was going just fast enough that when I hit that step, it threw me forward, and I hit the office door with my hands, and I guess it was not closed all the way, but I hit that door, and it flew open, and I flew into the office (laughs) onto carpet like this, skinned up my elbows and my knees as I just kind of slid across the floor and looked up, and all these people were standing there in the office watching me slide into the office. Of course, I was mortified, mortified, and then I had to spend the rest of the day with, you know, bloody elbows and knees, not quite so cute as I thought I was. So you fast forward a few years later, and uh, I was in college, and I was a vocal performance major. And um, God had given me some natural gifting in that area, and people would uh, compliment me a lot. I had won a lot of awards, and I'd become very lazy because I was good at that, and I wasn't working as hard as I should have been, taking a lot of things for granted, and I went to this one competition, and I really wasn't prepared. I should have been, but I figured, you know, I'm good at this. It'll be fine. I always win. It'll be great, so I hadn't prepared. I was I was just taking life for granted, and I went into this big competition and started into my piece and was singing it and, and kind of thinking, I'm not sure where I am in this, in this piece, but I'll just keep, I think I'm okay. You know, I just keep singing and, and pretty soon I'm singing and the piano has stopped. And I looked over at her and she kind of mouthed the words at me, it's over. (laughs) And so, you know, there's an awkward moment and the judges are just looking at me and I, I just kind of thanked them and walked off the stage, horrified, just horrified. And God began showing me that I thought too highly of myself and that if I continued down that path of thinking that somehow I was good enough and I was special enough and things were going to come my way because I deserved it, some kind of a sense of entitlement, that I was going to run into real trouble. And so I began asking God to change my heart because I was just full of pride, full of pride. And I didn't want to be that way, but that was my natural condition, was to just think highly of myself and to parade myself around the world like I was owed something, when that is not the case. And it takes a work of God to really get that out of our hearts. I don't know if it ever gets out completely while we're on earth, because I still struggle sometimes with a feeling of pride, But I can see growth. I look back and and see growth over the years where God has softened, softened that hardness that was in my heart. And that's what we want. That's what we want. Aren't you grateful that God loves you enough, cares enough about you to teach you things, either through your own foolishness that was mine or through situations that occur to you, that God loves you enough to mold you 
and shape you and grow you into the person he really intends for you to be. I want that in my life. As painful as that sometimes is, I do want that. And I welcome it. I'm grateful for it. So humility is important to God. That's why we see it throughout Scripture, um, that God wants us humble. You know, he hates, he says one of the things he hates are haughty eyes, a, a prideful countenance. And it just goes all the way through Scripture. So we want to be very mindful of how important this is to God. Secondly, then, humility is a gift. It's a gift from God. It's not torture. It's not something we have to resent or resist or dread. Humility is a gift from God. And the Bible shows us in a number of places how God does this. But one of the pictures I love the most, we see in Isaiah 64, 8. And you can turn there if you want to. We'll look at a couple of passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 64, 8, right kind of in the middle of the Bible. Uh, it's a big book. One of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 64, 8, says this. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. What a beautiful picture God gives us of the potter and the clay, that we are the work of God's hands. And you've seen people potting. You know what that looks like. Uh, or you've either been to a potting place or you've seen it on TV of how that potter has to work his hands through that clay to, and it goes up and it goes down and just various things to it to get the, the pot to have different shapes and different curves and handles or, or whatever. He works it and works it until he gets it just the way he wants it. And that's the process of the Christian life. And it's a wonderful one. But it doesn't always work the way God wants it to work. I mean, it's always according to his will. But we resist sometimes. We don't always, as the clay, we don't always fit into his hands just right. We will fight that sometimes. And Isaiah says, if you turn back to 29, 16, when the people were not being obedient, they were not responding to God. And Isaiah says there, speaking again about the potter and the clay, he's saying, but you're turning things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah is saying that we tend to question God. Sometimes we don't like what's happening. We'll question what he's doing. We, we don't like it. We don't like the situation. We don't like what's happening around us or in us or in our family or in our job or at our church. And so we start to hold that against God and question his love, question his care, because we don't like what's happening. And that's the clay resisting the hands of the potter. But this is even more so if you turn to Isaiah 45, 9. We see this passage. It's just so striking that Isaiah words it this way. He says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Basically, you know, we're all people. We're all dealing with the same stuff. Uh, we're all, in a sense, the same. We're all created by God as human beings. And here some of you are thinking better of yourselves. He says, Does the clay say to him who forms it, 
What are you making? Or this one. Your work has no handles. It's the pot looking at himself and saying, I don't like this shape. I don't have any handles. I want handles. I'm too tall. I'm too short. I was born in the wrong family. I don't like my siblings. You know, I hate the time I was born. I'm too old or I'm too young. My parents were alcoholics. My parents were in prison. I don't know, whatever your situation is, we're born into things we can't control. We were just talking about that at our table, actually. There is so much out of our control, and yet we tend to fight against those things. We resent God for those things. Some people will shake their fist at God. I don't like that part. I don't like what you did there. And all that does is make us miserable. It doesn't change God. It doesn't change his nature or his character if we get mad at him. All that does is dig in us a root of bitterness and resentment rather than just accepting from God's loving hands what he has allowed or what he has done. I want us to focus for a few moments on another prophet there next to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and look at him for a few minutes. He's one of my favorite, favorite characters in the Bible. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And here's just a map to give you an idea of what had happened. Um, under the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, the kingdom was one. It was one nation, Israel. And then after Solomon, when his sons took the throne, the kingdom divided. And it divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, which you can see in the green, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which was a little smaller, the purple. The northern kingdom, Israel, was ten whole tribes. The twelve tribes, remember there were twelve tribes from Jacob's twelve boys. The northern kingdom, Israel, was, 12, was ten tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah was just two, much smaller, two tribes. Um, and yet they were a strong nation, as Israel had been. But Jeremiah came along during the time when Israel had already been taken captive. In 722, Assyria, here were these two big kingdoms up to the uh, northeast of Israel and Judah, Assyria and Babylonia. And in 722, Assyria had already swept in and taken Israel away, taken them captive. Israel was already gone by the time Jeremiah came along. And Jeremiah was sent by God to tell the nation of Judah, if you don't repent, the same thing will happen to you. You saw Israel dragged away into exile, and the same thing will happen if you don't change your ways. And Jeremiah had 50 years to prophesy. There were the last five kings of Judah were the kings under which Jeremiah prophesied. Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah were the last five kings of Judah. And it was during all of their reigns that Jeremiah was speaking and, and pleading with them to stop sinning, stop rebelling against God. What was the number one issue for Israel and Judah? Number one, idol worship. Idol worship was their number one downfall. And they had gotten that when they were in Egypt, however many years, hundreds of years ago. They carried that with them out of Egypt. Because you remember, 
when Moses came down from Mount Sinai the first time with the first set, that sacred Ten Commandments, those tablets, and he was coming down the mountain to tell the people what had happened. He was so excited to share with them his 40 days with God and to show them these tablets that God had written for them. And he came down the mountain and he was hearing all kinds of noises and like a party, a big party. And he got down there and what did he find? What had they made? An idol. Because they thought Moses had disappeared on the mountain, was killed, was never coming back. And so here they were stranded in the desert and in Egypt, they worshiped cows. So, hey, let's make a cow. So they made the idol and they were going to worship this little idol, kind of pretend that it was God. And so they were having a big party. And that was what began this problem that they carried with them when they moved into Canaan. They picked up idol worship from the Canaanites all around them. And God kept having to deal with them. No idols. They'd even, you know, they were supposed to worship only in the temple. But they'd even set up alternate places where they could worship idols and still go to the temple. But then they could go here and worship this God or here and worship this God. And God was saying, no and he said it to Israel for a hundred years, and they were gone. They would not listen, and they were gone. So now here's Jeremiah saying, listen, the same thing will happen to us. Because what's the second thing that comes with idolatry? Disobedience in what form particularly? Immorality. Yes, immorality, because the pagan worship involved sexual practices. So, and going back again to our story of Moses coming down the mountain, we have this, at least I, had this picture growing up that when he came down the mountain, they were all dancing around the calf. Um, you know, and this is a lot of people. We're talking about they, they expect maybe a million people came out of Egypt. And so here they were. This whole nation of people with this calf, and they were all dancing, right? That's kind of what I've always pictured, dancing and worshiping. But pagan worship involved sex. And so not only were they just dancing, but they were having a full out, and I hate to use this word, I apologize, ugly word, but they were having a full out orgy, which means that they were involved in sexual relations with one another in public while they were worshiping. And this went on and on. That's why God finally had enough. You know, we might look at some of those and think, God's such a meanie. But no, these people were acting in a depraved way. And their hearts were not the Lord's. Their hearts belonged to lots of other gods and people and sexual expression. And God was saying, this is enough. It's just enough. You are not staying true to who I called you to be. I called you to be holy. Remember, be holy because I am holy. And they were so far removed from that. So God began to speak to Jeremiah. You are the prophet to Judah. Here's your message. And, Je and Jeremiah began to faithfully, over five kings worth, preach this message of repentance so that they would not suffer the same fate that Israel suffered. So turn to Jeremiah 18. God's going to give Jeremiah a picture. He's been prophesying now for some years, and so far, no response. 
And so in chapter 18, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord said, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. So here we're back with the picture of the potter and the clay with Jeremiah. He was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. So what is God saying to Jeremiah? I am working. I'm the potter. Judah is the clay, and I am working on my people so that they will repent. And th- but if they don't, here's the thing. I'm not finished. It may have looked to them like Israel was going to be demolished when they were all the people were taken captive. But God was saying to them, look, judgment will come. Discipline will come because you have not Listen to my word, but I will rebuild and restore. That's the picture he was giving Jeremiah. It's going to be bad. You know, he says that the the clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. It's going to get bad because we know that they didn't repent. And Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon. And so he was saying, you're all going to be displaced. You'll be in a strange country a language you don't speak, customs you don't know, you don't have jobs, you'll have to figure out what to do for work, you won't have a place to worship, you're going to have to figure that out without a temple. We're going to start over. We're going to start over. But I will be faithful, and I will continue to work that clay, even in exile. So we want to look at that next point then. Uh, humility is important to God. It's a gift from God because we see him giving that to his people as will become clearer in this next point that humility requires our participation. It requires our participation. It does come from God, but we have to be engaged in the process. We cannot make ourselves humble. You know, that's a, it's, a, it's one of those qualities you can't quite get your hands on Because as soon as you start thinking you're humble, you're not, because that's pride, right? So we don't ever really know when we're humble enough because God does that work in us. We don't make ourselves humble. That's the work of the Holy Spirit as we surrender to him. That's our part. Our participation is the surrendering, and God's work creates the humility in us. Jeremiah wrote a letter that I want us to look at in Jeremiah 29. Some years have passed, and the first uh, group of people has been taken to Babylon. There were actually two deportations, um, and some of the people have already gone into Babylon, and Jeremiah was left behind. The riffraff were left, and I guess Jeremiah was considered one of those. So he was still in Judah when most of the nation had been taken captive. And so he was still, still trying to reach them, even though they were now in Babylon. He was trying to reach them. So he sends them a letter that God had told him to write to encourage the people in exile. They've been disciplined 
And they're there now in this strange country. And here's what God said, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, he's still the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's his instruction to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives from among yourselves, not the Babylonians, but take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, thrive. In my place of discipline that's unpleasant to begin with, I want you to thrive because I have a plan for you. I haven't finished designing you as a pot. You're still in process, and I have a plan. So while you're there in the place of discipline, I want you to thrive. Don't just roll over and give up because you're unhappy or you're sad. Thrive there. And so he goes on in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That all is a big word there. With all your heart, the whole thing. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What a beautiful promise God gives them. You know, pick yourselves up and make these years in exile count because I'm going to bring you back. But when I bring you back, I want you strong and I want you back in fellowship with me. And that's what God did during those 70 years. He built a brand new people. I want to read to you a little section from Eugene Peterson's book, Run with the Horses, where he talks about Jeremiah, and he is describing those years in exile when they'd been stripped of everything that they knew and had, except for God and one another. Here's what Eugene says. They settled down in Babylon to find out what it meant to be God's people in the place they did not want to be. The result was that this became the most creative period in the entire sweep of Hebrew history. They did not lose their identity. They discovered it. They learned how to pray in deeper and more life-changing ways than ever. They wrote and copied and pondered the vast revelation that had come down to them from Moses and the prophets. And they came to recognize the incredible riches of their scripture They found that God was not dependent on a place. He was not tied to familiar surroundings. The violent dislocation of the exile shook them out of their comfortable but reality-distorting assumptions and allowed them to see depths and heights that they'd never even imagined. They lost everything that they thought was important 
and found what was important. They found God. The exile tore the cover off their way of life and showed its emptiness. Never again could they live by bread alone. The word of God became their essential nourishment. So the exile was the crucible of Israel's faith. They were pushed to the edge of existence where they thought they were hanging on by the skin of their teeth, and they found that, in fact, they'd been pushed to the center where God was. And they experienced not bare survival, but abundant life. When we surrender to what God has done or what God has allowed, when we surrender to that, even not understanding it, in their case, they understood it, but sometimes we don't understand hardship. But when we will choose to not resent it, but surrender to it, that's when God can begin to do things in us and with us we didn't know were possible. When we refuse to be prideful, but when we humble ourselves in God's hands. And what happens is we become strong. Humility is not weakness. It becomes strength in the hands of God. Because when these exiles returned, they returned with a strength they hadn't known. They loved God. They had become dependent on him in Babylon. And they'd become dependent on one another for fellowship. And when they returned, they were a strong people. Nehemiah, one of their leaders who came back to help them rebuild, was a strong leader. And he had lived in Babylon, and yet he knew the Lord, and he had confidence, and he got a word from God of what to do, and he went fearlessly, and he did what he was told to do. Because humility is not weak, it is strong. When we choose the position of not rising far from the ground, when we have that in our minds, and we choose that, we can't be toppled. When we're prideful, we can be toppled. Our legs can be cut out from under us. But when we're already low to the ground, there's nowhere to go. We're safe there because in that place where God has us, we are filled with confidence and courage and strength because we know who we are in Christ. And that gives us strength and confidence. And so over time, as they came back, they began to pick up the surrounding uh, practices again around them of intermarrying with the pagans. So when the second leader group came back with Ezra leading them, Ezra had been born and raised in captivity. And yet he knew the word of God backwards and forwards. He was a scribe. He had spent his life transcribing, writing the scrolls, the word of God. He knew the word inside and out. Having been raised in captivity, a solid, spiritually committed man came back with that second group of exiles and he gets there and sees that now that they've been there for some years, they've started intermarrying again. So he gets out the word of God and he says, let's go, get back together. You've forgotten what the word says. And he reads the word to them and a national Revival takes place, and they repent once again and return to the Word of God. So they did still have some problems with their desires to kind of be like the people around them. But what did they never do again 
all the way through to today, the Jews, Israel, has never again done what? Worship idols. They have never, since they've gone into Babylon to exile, have never ever become idolaters again. God freed them of that desire to worship something other than him. And they have remained faithful to God ever since. Isn't that amazing? That God used that terrible time that they thought was going to be awful to change them into a faithful people. So that they came back strong. Of course, the greatest example of humility we have is Jesus who had all the power at his disposal to do anything he wanted, but chose humility. And we know in John 13, he taught the disciples by serving. He wrapped the towel and washed their feet to teach them. This is how I want you to respond to one another, to love each other, to serve one another. He gave them that example. But really, his greatest act of humility was the crucifixion. Because he didn't have to do that. And even on the cross, he could have come down. He was not powerless. He chose. He chose to be spit on and mocked and whipped. And he, he chose to hang there naked, which I can't even imagine the humility of being crucified naked. But he let that happen because he was strong. Because he knew who he was, and he knew who he, what he was doing, and why he was doing it. And he did it in humility and strength. Wow. That's the picture that God wants us to have of what humility really is. It's choosing, choosing to surrender ourselves for what God has called us to. Because we know, ultimately, it's going to be the best thing for us, even if it's painful for a while. But in surrendering to it, God does beautiful things in our lives and gives us a testimony, a story that can change other people's lives. A few years ago, I guess four years ago, um, I co-hosted a radio show with another gal for about a year, which was a lot of fun. But during that process, I had the privilege of interviewing Gary Smalley. Do you all know who Gary Smalley is? Okay, most of you do. He was a marriage, I think of him as a marriage guru. Um, primarily in the 80s, his biggest part of his career was in the 80s and then a little bit into the 90s. But um, he burst on the scene and was became America's marriage counselor. Very engaging. You know, you saw his videos, probably our church showed his videos. We did group studies and um, everybody loved Gary Smalley. And he seemed to have a knack for communicating about marriage. And that's how I thought of him. Well, fast forward, you know, that was in the 80s. Um, and so here he comes on our show. Now he's in his 70s. And I hadn't really heard much about Gary in some years, I knew he'd come out with a new book, which is why he was on our show, to promote his book. Um, so I was kind of eager to talk to him and find out what had happened in the years since. Um, and so he comes on the show, and, and the first part of our conversation, we were just talking about life and stuff. And, and in his conversation, he just 
kept pouring out scripture and he would talk, 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 and then a verse and talk, talk, and a verse and, and full of enthusiasm, just the same old Gary Smalley that I remembered. And, and when he took a break there for a second, I said, wow, Gary, you kind of sound like a preacher to me. I don't remember thinking of you that way, but you don't sound like the same Gary to me. And he said, I'm not the same Gary. God has changed me in the last 20 years through a series of things. And here's what he began to share about his life. When he was a little kid, he failed the third grade. And when he graduated, he could only read on a sixth grade level. And he described himself as an academic failure. And that he only passed the classes like woodshop, automotive, and sports. He just did not do well at academics. But as he got into adulthood, um, he was good with people. And so he ended up getting a job as a family life pastor at a church. And he said, I didn't know anything about anything at that point. Um, I wasn't real well educated and was didn't love to read, obviously. I struggled with that, academics. And so uh, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was teaching things. And mostly what I would do was I would ask my wife, what do you, what do you know about relationships. And she would tell me things and I would teach what my wife was telling me about relationships. I didn't know very much. Well, in the course of being a family life pastor, he was invited to do a breakout session at a conference. So he goes to this conference and he does his session. Well, the keynote speaker at that conference heard him and came over to him later and said, you know, you're a really gifted speaker which he thought was amazing because he still felt like he really didn't know what he was talking about. He was borrowing information to share. But you're a really gifted speaker, and I can give you a five-point plan if you want to make this a success. Well, he thought, well, sure, why not? So the guy gave him this five-point plan, which wouldn't necessarily work today because our our way of communicating is so different now with, with the digital age. But here were the five things he was told to do. Get your message down in a book, which first of all, he had to figure out what his message was. But get your message down in a book. Then record 10 messages that go with that book on on cassette tapes. And then make 10 movies, teaching videos to go with the book and the cassette tapes. And then start speaking at conferences. And while you're doing that, the fifth thing is, Keep counseling people. Start a counseling ministry where you're counseling one-on-one on a regular basis because that's how you stay in touch with what's happening with people. So you have a message. If you'll do those five things, put your whole heart into it, you'll be successful. Well, he walked away from that conference really wanting to do that but had no idea how and didn't feel smart enough to pull it off on his own. So he said, I humbled myself before the Lord. I was a runner. He said, I ran two to five miles a week. And so I told God, I will pray those miles I'm running. And I will submit myself to whatever you want to do. And as you show me things, I will take these five steps and I'll do them to the best of my ability, but only if you help me, because I don't know what I'm doing. And as he began to pray that every time he ran, things started happening. He didn't give us all the details, but he said within two years, all five of those things had been accomplished and were continuing to grow and build, and his ministry exploded 
you know, all over the country and in all of our churches. And he was a big deal for about 15 years. And then he said, in the 90s, my ministry started falling through, through no, no explanation really that anybody could give him. His popularity started to wane. And he was losing money and, and losing people's trust. And he said, I, I started looking back on that now and I realized what was happening. But it, I let that sort of continue to downward spiral until I got really sick. I had a health crisis. My body was shutting down. I was very sick for a long time and I finally got a kidney transplant, which helped me kind of come back. But he said, during those years, I realized that I had become very prideful. And that by the end of the big success years, I talked myself into the fact that I was changing marriages. And that I was a really good communicator. And I could speak truth into people and their lives changed. And I was very powerful. And the world had become all about Gary. And he said, God began taking me down just notch by notch. And those were Gary's words. Gary said, God took my health until I surrendered. Now, some people would say that God doesn't do that. God doesn't inflict that, but God allowed it, certainly. And in Gary's mind, God did that to him to get him to a place of surrender to God, to where he just gave up, released his career, released his reputation, released his health. And he said, God, what do I do? I'm at the bottom. What do I do? And God reminded him, what did you used to do? Pray and start memorizing scripture. Start learning my word all over again. And so he said, there I was in recovery from my kidney transplant. And I started memorizing scripture, chapters of scripture to get it back into my head. And I began to be thankful every day. I would just thank God. Thank you that I'm in this bed. Thank you that I'm recovering. Thank you that you're giving me a second chance. The pot was being reshaped into something new, a new vessel. His marriage got better. His relationship with his kids got better. And he started writing again and published a couple more books before he died. You know, at the beginning, we looked at James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, right? For those who love God, that's the condition. Not everything works together for good for people who don't love God. But for those of us who do love God, we know that what's happening in our lives is working together for good. But what's the condition even for that? Those who love God. And where does love come from? Humility. Love comes from humility. We can't love if we're prideful. It's when we've surrendered that we can truly love other people and love God. So how do we stay humble? Our closing points here. First of all, since we can't do it ourselves, make ourselves humble, these are some steps we can take to go that direction. Oh, my word, it's late. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'll do these fast. Okay, kill pride. 
is the first one. Stop complaining about things. Um, stop thinking of yourself as greater than other people. Kill pride. Secondly, love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Focus on him. Focus on loving the Lord and reducing your love of things. Thirdly, love and serve people. More than wanting the pleasures of the world, look for ways to serve others instead of yourself. And then be thankful and joyful in difficulties. As scripture says, when we encounter various trials, be thankful that God is with us and choose to focus on him. So we want to choose surrender, to choose it, not rising far from the ground. And so what will that look like this week? As you go into your week, a practical way that we can apply this is to turn every compliment you might get, turn every compliment and prideful thought into thanksgiving. Choose to just say, thank you, Lord, for what I have. Thank you for that thing someone just said to me. Give all the glory and the credit to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a perfect example of humility. Thank you for showing us how to do this. And we pray with all our hearts, God, that we will surrender to you this week and let you grow us in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.